welcome all of you to part four of our summer series. I've told you before, the summer series, it's kind of an idea a week that we go through. And so it might not be something that needs an entire series to itself, but I think that it's still items or things that are very important to our spiritual walk, very important to our spiritual lives. So go ahead and grab out your Bible and something to take some notes with. We believe in taking notes here at Victory, and you can quote this yourself, all right? You've heard me say it enough. But if you want to, you can pull up the Victory Harvest Church app. We've got a fill-in-the-blank version of all the notes there for you, all the verses that we'll go through. So if you'd like to keep up a little bit faster, you don't have to write everything. You can fill in the blank, everybody. So we provided that for you. But this summer series, I think, are some items that maybe throughout the year we've touched on a little bit, or maybe some things that we've, we've kind of glanced over on our way to somewhere else, but I think it's important to revisit those uh, and to talk about something throughout this summer series, each item each week that we can learn about. But today is a little different in that I want to kind of expound on something we talked about last week, something that I was just one of the points. And if you remember last week, I know it's kind of hard because there's a lot of hamburgers in the way between ice cream between you and last week. But if you think about last week, we ended with the thought that God will connect me, that God will give me relationships in my life, that God will connect me in areas when I'm feeling short or I'm feeling not as strong as I should be, that God will bring people into our lives and relationships. And I want to dig a little deeper into that thought. Not that you needed to be here last week. I think today we'll stand alone. But I want to look a little bit into that thought. And the theme verse may seem a little strange to you at first, but I'll explain it as we go along. It's out of the book of James. And it's chapter 4, and James is asking the question, what is your life? And I would ask you that question this morning. What is your life? In other words, what is the meaning? What is it worth? What, is, what do you do with it? What, what is the reason you have it? What is your life? And he goes on to say that you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. And isn't it true, the older you get, the more you start to understand this verse. And James is basically saying, you better figure out what your life is about. You better figure out the meaning of life. You better figure out why you've been put on this earth. Because you're just a mist, and eventually, life will pass you by. Probably sooner rather than later. Probably quicker than you would imagine, life will pass you by. So you better figure out why you're here. You better figure out what your life is all about, about this question. And I believe that it's important to learn how to live a rich and rewarding life that God has called us to. I think it's important for us to study what our life actually means, why we're on this earth, what we've been called to do, so we can live the life God has called us to. You know, when God was creating the earth, he went to the dog and he said, I want you to sit on your porch and bark at everything that goes by your house. And the dog said, well, that sounds great. I would love to do that. Those of you who have dogs, you understand that that is right up their alley, right? I would love to bark at every single noise in the middle of it. I don't care what it is. I'd love to do that, Lord. And the Lord said, well, if you do that, I'll give you 20 years here on the earth in order to do it. And the dog said, well, slow down a little bit. I, I would love to do that, but 20 years is a long time. How about I give you 10 of those years back? And the Lord said, that's okay. I'll take that deal. And so then he went to the monkey and he said, I'd like you to jump and do tricks for everybody who comes by and entertain, right? And if you do that for me, I'll give you 20 years here on the earth. And the monkey said, I'd love to do that, Lord. I'd be honored to jump around and do tricks and entertain people. But 20 years is a long time. How about I give you 10 of those years back? And the Lord said, that's fine. I'll take that deal. And then God went to the cow and he said, I want you to work hard. And I want you to toil and I want you to work and give the farmer and his family and, you know, provide for them, toil the soil and, and really make hard work for them to provide and do all of those things. And if you work hard, I'll give you 60 years here on the earth. And the cow looked and said, Lord, I'd be honored to serve, but 60 years is a long time to serve. How about I give you 40 of those back? And God said, that's fine. 
And then he went to man and he said, I want you to run and jump and play and get married and enjoy life and do everything fun and never anything that you don't want to do. And if you'll do that, I'll give you 20 years here on the earth. And the man said, well, Lord, that sounds fantastic. I'd love to do that. But 20 years is not that long. I I need some more time. And so how about how about I get the 40 years of the cow? And, you know, I'll take the 10 years of the monkey and, and give me the 10 years the dog gave you back, too. And that'll be 80 years here on the planet. And the Lord said, well, that's fine. I'll, I'll take that deal. And that explains why for 20 years we enjoy ourselves. We run, we jump, we play, we get married. But then for 40 years we break our back and we work to provide for our families and we toil. And then for 10 years we do tricks and entertain the grandchildren. Come on, somebody. And we do this. And then for the final 10 years we sit on our porch and we bark at everything <laughs> that goes by our house. <laughs> and that is the meaning of life, everybody. All right, I have given you... Sermon, sermon concluded. You can go ahead. Go ahead and leave. No, life is actually incredibly complex, everybody, all right? It's actually got some complexity to it. And so I think to understand it, we need to go to God's Word. To understand the complexity of it, I think it's important for us to understand what life is really about. What is your life? What is it really about? Because I think the things that the world would call a successful life, the things that the world might tell you is what culminates a successful life, The things that you can accumulate, I think, are not so important after all. Because there will come a day that you and I will stand before our maker. There will come a day that we'll stand before him and give an account for the things that we did. We'll give an account for the things that he gave us. We'll give an account for the things that were under our control. The things, the decisions that we made. And I think the things that we thought were so important here in this moment might not be so important then. So what is a successful person, a life well lived? Well, Ecclesiastes chapter 2, Solomon writes, I had everything that a man could desire. Watch this. He said, I became greater than all who lived in Jerusalem, and my wisdom never failed me. And watch what he says. Anything I wanted, I would take. I denied myself no pleasure. Imagine this, if you will. The wealthiest, wisest man who ever lived says, I denied myself no pleasure. More money than anyone who's ever lived. More money in any kingdom, anywhere, any time. He says, I denied myself nothing. There was nothing that I denied myself from pleasure. And then he, he goes on in that chapter to talk about. And he says that he builds these, these gardens and reservoirs to water them. He builds architecture. He gets into hobbies and crafts. He begins to do all these massive projects he talks about. And then he gets out of that and he says, I started to build cities and I started to amass armies and I started to build wealth and I started to do all of these things. He talks about all the things that he does. He literally accomplishes everything that the world would call success. I don't care what you put on that list. Solomon probably did it in some way or another. He said, I accomplished all of this. And then he goes on to say, and I looked at everything. I looked at all that I accomplished because sometimes we come up with that excuse. Well, that wealthy person wouldn't they didn't do it how I would do it. If I was as wealthy as them, I would be happy and I would have meaning and I would do a better job with their wealth. Or if I had all the relationships that that person had, then I would not fall into traps or things. Or if I had all the the power that that person had, I would make the right. We get into that trap. Solomon said, I did it all. I denied myself nothing. And he said, then I looked at it all. Everything I worked so hard to accomplish, and it was all so meaningless. Like chasing the wind, there was nothing really worthwhile anywhere. In other words, I don't know why I did all of those things. It felt like my life had no meaning. It felt like I chased after the wind. In fact, it felt like I really wasted my life chasing all of these things. And then chapter 4, he says, I observed yet another example of something meaningless under the sun. Watch this. 
This is the case of a man who is all alone without a child or a brother. So he's observing these things. He's saying, I had everything and it was meaningless. And then I observed this person who was all alone. And he's actually, if you read this passage, he's beginning to talk about himself. Without child or brother, yet who works hard to gain as much wealth as he can. But then he asks himself, who am I working for? And this passage kind of reflects some of the relational dysfunction in Solomon's life. You read back the relational, he's had a thousand wives, but he's got relational dysfunction in the way that he ends up and the way that he's allowed to lead this stray. He said, I'm working really hard, but who is it for? I'm, I'm doing all these things, but why am I doing it? I have everything, but it's meaningless. So he asked the question, who am I doing it for? And then he goes on to say, it's actually meaningless and depressing. All this stuff that I've had, all this, this is the end path, he says. I had everything, every wealth, every relationship, every desire I could possibly have. And I feel like it's meaningless and depressing. And I wonder how many of us have defined success in life based on the titles we can achieve or the things that we can purchase or the power that we can go after. And each tier of that we've defined as if I can just get to there, then I'll be successful. If I can just get to there, I can, the accomplishments that we achieve, we set up as the goal. See, the reality is I think a lot of us would look at some of the things in our life and realize that the striving after them has become meaningless. That the striving after them, that we, people would look at our lives out from the outside. People would look at us from maybe another nation, would look at our lives here and say, well, your life is rich and it's full of meaning, or, or your life is successful because you have this amount of wealth, or, or you have this title. And people would look at us and say, well, that, that's, it's got to be rich and successful and full of meaning. And yet on the inside, we're feeling restless and we're feeling meaningless. Well, today we're going to talk a little bit about what makes life worth living, what makes life have meaning. Because honestly, when we try all of these hobbies or we try these things we accomplish, we try to fill it with companies that we build or sell. We try to fill it with titles that we possess. We try to fill it with power that we could achieve. It leaves us feeling empty inside. As Solomon discovers here, he's kind of illuminating it in this chapter. He's kind of illuminating that it's not the what that we're doing, but it's the who that we're doing it for. He says the meaning and the, the meaningless part is this man who's all alone. He's saying, why am I doing all the things that I'm doing? Why am I working so hard? Why am I throwing all of my effort to the wind? If my life is just a mist or a vapor, why am I wasting it for this stuff that doesn't really matter and doesn't satisfy anyway? Right. Reality is, like I said, we'll stand before our maker one day and he's going to ask us, what did you do with what I gave you? What did you do with what I gave you with this? Even if it's a mist or a vapor, we'll have to give an account for our lives. What did you do with what I think the sad reality oftentimes is I don't believe that the things that matter so much right now will matter in that moment. And I think that the one thing that will stand is who we did it for and the lives that we touch. Because I think the sad reality, though, if you're taking notes, oftentimes the pursuit of the things that we want destroy the relationships that we need. Oftentimes we get so wrapped up in the things that we want, the things we feel we need to achieve, that we destroy the very relationships that we actually need. Well, it's our relationship with God, the relationship with other people. And I think the sad trap that the world sucks us into is we tell ourselves that we're working really hard. We're networking. We're doing these things. We're, we're trying to achieve all those things in order to fuel the relationships that are important. That, that I'm working so hard. I'm doing all those things in order to help my family. And I'm, I'm networking. I'm doing those things in order to, to create the relationships that I think are important. I'm doing all. But in the end, it's usually always selfish pursuits. It's usually always something selfish for ourselves, and we end up doing them at the expense of the relationships that we want in the first place. 
the things that we need in the first place, the people that we love. And I think like Solomon, we'll wake up at the end of our lives and realize what was it all for? Because it all feels meaningless. It all feels empty without the relationships that we actually need. Well, Solomon launches into a passage here in Ecclesiastes chapter 4 that we're going to kind of highlight and walk through. Because he talks about this man who's all alone and he sort of gives these different, uh, I would call them diatribes, but he gives these different things. And we're going to spend our time looking at the need that we have for relationships. The need, the benefit they bring in our lives. So we'll start in verse 9. He says two people are better off. So he's, he's kind of given this meaningless thing and now he's talking about how we fix it. He says two people are better off than one. They can help each other succeed. They can help each other succeed. And so when you have relationships in life, jot it down if you're taking notes. Number one, they help you to go further. They help you to be more successful. When you have these relationships in your life, they help you. When you have people in your life, they help you go further faster. And again, the sad tragedy is we oftentimes destroy the relationships in the pursuit of the things we want when they're the relationships that would actually propel us to the life God's called us to. And so often we go after that with everything we've got and we'll destroy any relationship in our life to get there. I don't care who you are. You're going under because I need to get to what I want. And so we destroy those relationships. But the reality is God puts us in relationships to help us. He puts us in relationships to help us go further, to do more with our lives, to benefit the kingdom. And oftentimes, though, I feel like success, when we have a message like this, success is almost like a dirty word. Like you just can't be successful if you want to have a relationship. No, you'll be more successful in the kingdom of God when you recognize the relationships that you need. You think, well, success is a dirty word. It's not. When God created the earth, and and this is not a joke this time, when he created the earth... He put Adam and Eve, said, be fruitful and multiply, dominion over the earth. You should have this innate ability or this desire to change the things around you, to grow things, to make things work, to do things that are productive, that are successful in the kingdom of God. That's put inside of you by God himself. Success is not, there's nothing wrong with being successful. The idea, this desire to achieve or expand. But yeah, but when God gives you a vision, this is what I want you to see. When God gives you a vision, something to accomplish, it's not about that thing. It's not about that thing that you're building or that thing that you're doing. It's not about that. It's about the people that you're impacting for the kingdom. When God gives you a vision, when there's success in the kingdom of heaven, when you're building his kingdom, it's about the people that you're reaching. You're doing things. Yeah, you're being successful. God's blessing you. You're in relationships. Things are happening, but it's not about those things because they're all going to burn anyways, everybody. You understand that. Anything that's made of wood, hay, or stubble is going to burn before the end. It's people that last. The people that we touch, the souls that we reach, it's always about building people. In fact, jot it down this way if you're taking notes. My success will bless people and build people. If it's truly success that God has given us, it will bless people and it will build people. In other words, if I were to be successful by God's standards, if I were to be successful by the word of God's standards, everything that I do would build people and bless people. I'll give you an example out of the city of Jerusalem. Nehemiah was in Babylon, who kind of ran the world at the time when he lived. And he hears rumors that the gates of Jerusalem have been burned with fire and that the walls have been broken down. And the economy's in shambles and the people are distraught and there's no defenses and there's all this. So Nehemiah hears about this and he decides, I want to do something about it. I want to rebuild the walls. I want to do something. He has this great call from God. He calls it a great work. He says, I'm going to do that. And so he shows up at Jerusalem with all these funds and all this this goodwill from the king and all these plans and things to institute the project. But he doesn't build, it doesn't bring a building crew. You'll notice this in the book. He doesn't bring people to build the walls. In fact, he puts the people to work. 
And it's incredible to watch because he puts them at the places that they would care the most about because it says the places they repair, each person is the nearest to their home that they're repairing the wall. And so Nehemiah shows up with all the intentions. He has a God vision, a project that he wants to accomplish. But in the end, he ends up building the wall, but he builds the people. And so he it brings in skills and trades that they learn. They begin to actually rebuild their walls together, creates the economy. He does all of these things, building the people but then ultimately building the wall and blessing the community. You understand this? He's building people, blessing people, still accomplishing what God has called him to do. Still accomplishing. So he's coming back. Everything we do that's successful in the kingdom of God will bless people. That he'll reach out to do. Everything God calls us to build people. And same thing is true for your life. God may have called you to build a great family or to build a great community or to build a great company. To do something great in this world. I believe that God has something for every person. That God created every person on purpose for a purpose. He has something for you to accomplish in the kingdom of God. But it's always so you can bless other people. He doesn't give you those skills and abilities so you can just bless yourself. He doesn't give it so you can build a great company so everyone can look and say, what a great company. He does it so you can build and bless people that we can build the kingdom of God. That that's what we're going after. Jot it down if you're taking notes. It's not about what we are building. It's who we are building. It's not about what? It's not about these things that aren't going to last anyway. It's about the lives that we are touching. We have to answer the question of who. And Galatians 5 says it this way, serve one another in love. He says you were called to be free. Just talking to Christians, you were called to be free, but don't use your freedom to indulge the flesh. And he talks about that, to fight, to backbite. Don't use your freedom to just backstab somebody else. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. But then here's what happens, unfortunately, too often. We get our freedom. We decide, well, I'm going to follow Jesus. Now I'm free. And we use our freedom to indulge the flesh. Watch what it turns into. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. The reason he said that is our natural propensity... Our natural propensity as humans, even when we're free, even when we've been called, our natural thing is to believe that our success comes at the expense of someone else. Or the flip side, to believe that someone else's success comes at our expense. This is something so deep-rooted in people that it's incredible. Sometimes you don't even see it in yourself. I've caught myself at this. It becomes so hard to celebrate someone else's success. Someone else's achievement. It becomes so hard to celebrate them because we feel like, well, it's come at the expense of my own. And we're backbiting and destroying one another in the midst of this. But God is saying, no, 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 no. Use your freedom. Love one another. Serve one another in love. Humbly in love. Serving one another. We have to get this Galatians 5 mentality. Because we'll come into a situation. We'll be like, oh, man, they got a new house. I can't believe that they got a new... I've been praying for six months. Come on, God. I've been praying for six months for a new house, and they bought a new... And now God won't give me my house because they, got, because they bought the only house in existence, right? In all of the world. They bought the only one. And God looked down and said, I had to choose, and I just don't like you as much. And so I gave them their... We think of these things, even in our marriages, we'll think, well, if my spouse is achieving, having success, so it's coming at the expense of my own success. I'm not getting what I want, and so I'm not going to celebrate when you achieve something. And when we fall for that type of mentality, it's biting and devouring each other. There's no serving one another in love. It's just biting and backbiting, backstabbing, devouring. When we let that pride rise in our heart where my success can only come at the expense of yours. We try to lower others so we can raise ourselves. 
And Paul is saying, you can't do this. You can't use your freedom to try to attack each other because eventually you'll just destroy one another. Eventually you're going to destroy. And the Bible says that's not what relationships are about. We're supposed to be in an environment where they are mutually exclusive. There must be an environment where success in the body of Christ is not mutually exclusive. Success in the body of Christ is not, well, if someone succeeds, well, then I can't. Success in the body of Christ is running together to achieve and build the kingdom. We're not building our own thing here, everybody. I don't know if anybody's ever told you differently, but we're not building the kingdom of Ben around here. We're not building your kingdom in this world. We're building the kingdom of Jesus Christ. That's what we've been called to do. It's what Ecclesiastes says, that we can help each other succeed. So relationships don't compete, they complement. They don't compete, they complement, they complete. And so what we should be in to look for is how our relationships in the body of Christ, the skills and the talents God has given us, how those can complement one another, that we can achieve what God has put us here to achieve. That if our success in the body of Christ is going to come not at the expense of others, but together in unity, whether it's a church or a family or a group of believers, just people that are believing together, that are doing something for the kingdom, that we complement each other, we bless each other. Now, the reality is the Lord convicted me a little bit in preparing uh, this message this week. And that is that usually when I bring you a relationship message, I tell you how great relationships are and why you should have them. And I'm going to do that today. All right, everybody? No, no tricks up my sleeve. I'm going to tell you why they're so great and why you need them. But then usually I go on to give you the tools and how to select the relationships that would benefit you. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's biblical to begin to to single out which relationships God has called into your life to decide on how you're going to choose those. And that's normally what I would do. But the Holy Spirit convicted me a little bit. And that is maybe we can look at it from a different perspective this summer. Maybe we can look at it from a Galatians 5 perspective. So instead of looking or this, this idea of who can make me successful, what kind of friend should I look for, what kind of relationship should I enter into, What kind of thing will help me to be a better person? Let's ask the question, who can I serve? Who can I serve? Instead of looking for, this is the type of relationship I need in order to do what God has called me to do. Let's look at it from a Galatians 5 perspective of then who can I serve? Who in my life can I bring service to? Who can I humbly serve in love? Who can I lift up? Who can I do that for? I want to challenge you this week. Look at your marriage. Look at your kids, look at your coworkers, look at the students in your class, look at your, your classmates, look at those things around you. Look at the world that God has called you to and begin to ask yourself, who is in my life that I need to begin to humbly serve? Who is in my life that I need to lift up? How can I serve the people in my world? It's a hard thing to do, especially in marriage and with your kids, because I know what you're saying. You're like, they don't deserve it. Come on, somebody. They just don't. You don't know, Pastor, the situation. You don't understand what they've done. They don't deserve me to humbly serve them. They deserve to humbly serve me. Come on, somebody. That's what they, that's why they're in this world. They deserve it. You say, well, they don't deserve my humble service. But I would remind you, that's what the Bible says a servant is. That while we were enemies of the cross, Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, was a servant of all. That while we were enemies of God, far from him, he still humbly laid down his life to serve. Humbly laid down his life and served us in ways that we could never repay. In ways that we would never deserve. You understand that? It's not like, well, one day I'll deserve it. No, we could never deserve the gift that he gave. And so we need to look in our own lives and say, who can I serve? How can I be a blessing? How can my skills and my giftings help you be successful? How can I humbly serve? And I promise your life will be a lot rich if you see it through that perspective, that Galatians 5 perspective. You start looking for ways to serve people. Ecclesiastes goes on to say, likewise, 
Two people lying close together can keep each other warm. So not only can they serve, not only can we begin to go more successful, can we do that, but another thing that we cannot do for ourselves, just another item, he says, to keep each other warm. How can one be warm alone? So relationships make life more, jot it down if you're taking notes, more sustainable. They make life more sustainable because reality is the first one is about, it's about potential really. That there's no limit to the potential. When you two are walking together, when you have this idea for success, when we come in relationship and we serve one another, it's about potential. But then there's the reality of the fact that life is really hard. That as you get into life and you live life, life is hard. Anybody who tells you different is selling you something. All right, everybody? It's, life is difficult. Jesus even promised in this life you will have trouble. But take heart, I've overcome the world. That there are going to be times that life is hard. And Paul talks about it too. In Hebrews chapter 12, the Bible says, we run with perseverance the race set out for us. We run with perseverance. You see, all throughout the New Testament, the Bible talks about the Christian life or the life of faith as a race, as running. And if you are a normal human today, you understand that running is awful. All right, everybody? Can I get a witness in the house of the Lord? You understand, right, that running is just hard to do. Running is a terrible thing. Right? Come on. I got about 10% of you runners. You hate me right now. That's okay. I'm jealous because I have zero cardio. All right? We'll just, we'll just leave it at that. And there is no such thing as a runner's high. All right, everybody? I just want to get that right clear. That is something that really fit people made up to kill the rest of us. All right? That is what, that is what a runner... They just say, just keep running and you'll get a runner's high. No, you don't, everybody. You die. All right? You just keep on. It's just not there. It just doesn't, doesn't exist. All right, but you wait two weeks, runners. Your Olympics are here. It's when we watch people run around in circles. All right, it'll be your highlight time. All right, the rest of us will sit on our couch and cheer on those people running all those races. But the reality is, this race in life, and anytime you are running, and you are running hard, and you are trying to accomplish whatever it is, anytime you are running, you recognize how awful it is, and you want to quit. Come on, somebody. That's the 90% of us. When you are running, you want to quit because it's awful, because it's hard, because it's tiring. And Galatians chapter 6 says, let us not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time we'll reap a harvest if we do not give up. You know why he wrote that? Because people want to give up. Because running is hard. Because it's difficult. Because it's tiring. Because it's awful. Because you get into life and you realize this race is hard. And I don't want to be married today, and I don't want to raise these kids today, and I don't want to work hard today, I don't want to be good today, I don't want to do all of these things for the kingdom today. It's hard. Running is difficult, and we have to come to a place in our life where we realize we need relationships around us to make this thing sustainable. The relationships we need that allow us to run this race, that allow us to be sustainable, and we think, well, I just want to cash out, I'm done, I've had enough. Only way you and I find ourselves sticking in this race is by the relationships that are around us, that are pushing us, that are cheering us on, that are encouraging us, that are doing those. Here's our ending verse from last week when I talked about God will connect me. Second Timothy says, flee the evil desires of youth, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Watch this. This is the race that we're running. This is the race, the life of faith that we've been called to run. Flee the desires, pursue righteousness, run after faith, run after love, run after peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. He's saying, run after those things, but I recognize that the race is long and the race is hard. And so I'm asking you, run after them, but with people who have a pure heart are also pursuing those things. The relationships that we need that make us more sustainable. And you learn even from the Olympics. If there's one thing I've learned from the pre-trials of the things we've been watching this summer up till now, is that is when you run in a group, you are more sustainable than when you run alone. 
Because there are headwinds and other things you need to compete with when you're running alone. And you notice the individual races, when they're not running in a group, they're running about 100 meters as fast as they can possibly run. But when you run in a group, it's more sustainable. That it's more sustainable than running alone. That you can go further, faster to finish the race. And so you don't get off by yourself. You don't go into the headwinds. You don't try to run all this thing. Do everything alone because it's not sustainable, everybody. That's not what we've been called to. And I believe it's a picture of the Christian life that you need people in your corner, people cheering you on. You need people sustaining you. But this morning I would ask us, how can we look at this from a different perspective? Instead of looking for our own cheering section, instead of trying to figure out, well, how can I convince people that I am worthy of praise, that I do need cheering and I do need encouragement, I do these all. Let us begin to look at the people in our life and ask the question, who can I encourage? Who can I serve and then who can I encourage? Who needs that in my life? Who can I lift up? Who can I build? Instead of looking for our own cheer section, let's look throughout our lives and say, you know what? I know that marriage can be difficult. I know that raising kids can be hard. I know that it's, it's hard to be a good friend. And I know that it's hard to live this life of faith. And I know that that's a difficult thing. Who can I encourage in my life? Begin to think of those things. This isn't a rhetorical question. Begin to picture people in your own life, coworkers or people that you go to school with or people in your family that you begin to lift up. Who can I encourage? So I'm going to open my eyes to the pain around me. I'm going to open my eyes to the difficulty of the life that we live. I'm going to look at my life and say, who can I encourage? Who can I lift up? Who can I begin to cheer on? Who, who needs my encouragement? And I would just encourage you, don't rob someone of an unspoken blessing. When you see somebody that's doing something great for your family, or maybe they're helping your marriage or your kids, or they're doing something for your job, or somebody, say something, encourage them. Let's reach out and begin. Don't, don't leave it unsaid where you say, well, someone else will tell them later on. Begin to encourage people. Amen. I have a hobby that I picked up in high school. I don't really remember why I started doing it, to be honest with you. But ever since I started driving, I would be out on the highway or somewhere out here on one of Florida Boulevard. And I would see one of those trucks, like a box truck or an 18-wheeler or something. And they've got on the back that bumper sticker, how is my driving? And there'd be an 800 number plastered on there. And so I would call the 800 number. And I still do this. Anytime I see those and I get a chance to see whatever their little call sign is, I'll call the 800 number and I'll go through the initial questions. Yes, ma'am. My name is Ben Workman. My number's 225. Yeah. And they'll say, where did the incident occur? And I'll say, yeah, we're heading, you know, just past the South, you know, Sherwood Forest exit. We're headed west. And, and then they'll ask that question. And can you describe the incident? And I'll say, oh, yeah, he's doing a phenomenal job. He's driving incredibly. He could have cut someone off and he actually slowed down and let them in. And I just want you to put in his file what an awesome job that he's doing. You want the quickest way to blow somebody's mind, everybody. You join me in this little hobby. You want to just blow it? Because I will, after I assure them that I am serious and I do want them to put that in the thing, I will ask them, how many people have called in with something good? How many people have called? And most of them tell me I am the only person all year that has called something it didn't cost me anything. You see people in your life, the people you come across are no different. They may be catching it from their boss. They may be catching it right and left from their spouse, from their kids. You don't know what they're walking through. It doesn't cost you anything to encourage. It doesn't come at the expense of your success. It doesn't come at your expense. Who can I encourage? Who can I reach out to? Who can I begin to lift up? Who can I begin to serve in a Galatians 5 type of way? How can I encourage somebody, make that deposit in their life? We need to begin to live those. Let's look for opportunities. Let's be people who are known as encouragers. If you think about people in your life, you know each one for something. You, people are, and if you think you are not known for something, then they just haven't had the heart to tell you yet. All right, everybody? You are known for something. Let's be known as a people who encourage. 
people who lift up others. Back to our text one last time. He says, if one person falls, the other can reach out and help. But someone who falls alone is in real trouble. He says, if they stand back to back, they can conquer. But lying together warm, but how can one be warm alone? And then watch this. He talks about it. A person standing alone can be attacked and defeated. But two can stand back to back and conquer. They're even better for a triple braided cord is not easily broken. Three is even better. And he says, he looks at this, he says, but somebody standing alone cannot conquer. Somebody standing alone can't even defend themselves. Do you know attacks thrive in isolation? Attacks thrive in isolation. When you get alone, when you get kind of out on your own, away from the rest of it, they begin to, the attacks begin to thrive against you. You get isolated. There's no one there to protect. No one to stand back to back with. Nobody to protect in that thing. You've seen Animal Planet. I don't have to convince you, everybody. Attacks thrive in isolation. And when you get alone, you're vulnerable. When you get alone, you're vulnerable. So number three, the reality is we have people in our lives, we are less susceptible to the enemy. We have people in our lives, we are less susceptible to the enemy. If you've ever watched a scary movie, you know the key to surviving is staying in the living room. All right, everybody, you understand this with everybody else. I don't know why they go one by one down into the basement. I don't understand it, all right? Bill is already dead, and now you are too, all right? We understand this, this mentality. Attacks thrive in isolation. When we stay together as a group, we become less susceptible to the lies that try to come against us. That there's protection when you stay within the group, when you have those relationships protecting. Judges chapter 18 gives a perfect example of this. It says five men, they're going on to the town of Laish. And watch this, they noticed how secure everyone felt. I love that wording there. They noticed how secure they felt walking throughout the line, right? It's like they walked into Mayberry and they noticed how secure everybody felt. Their manner of life was Phoenician and they were wealthy. And they lived a great deal afar. Watch this, they lived quietly, unprepared for an attack. For there were no tribes in the area. They thought there was nobody around strong enough to try it. I wonder how many of us, this is a picture of our lives, that we live in our wealth and we live in our success and these things the world would tell us. And we've gotten distant from any relationships in our life because we feel like I'm strong enough. They lived a great distance from their relatives in Sidon, had little or no contact with the nearby villages. And so they're unprepared for the attack. They live all these distance. And I wonder in our relational lives, we feel like financially I'm stable. I've got enough money. I've got enough wealth. Financially, I'm good. I don't really see an attack on the horizon. That's never going to affect me. That thing will never, that's never going to take hold of me. I'm good in my life. I'm safe. And in that mentality, we have allowed our relationships to drift. No contact with any village around them. No, they're far from their relatives in Sidon. They live this life of the Phoenician wealthy. And they feel like nobody around is strong enough to even try it. And they've lied to themselves about their safety. And I wonder how often in our lives we do that. We're not close to those people. We're not close in our relationships. We've given up all those things. We've let them drift, the relationships we need. And we've left ourselves open to attack. We've left ourselves open. Unfortunately, the Bible goes on to say about this town, it says the five guys come back against Laish, people at peace and secure, and they attack them with the sword and they burn down the city. And I wonder how many of us How many of us find ourselves in that place? Because the Bible goes on to say why this happened again. And watch this. After the attack, there was no one to rescue them because they lived a long way from Sidon and they had no relationship with anyone else. They had no relationship with anybody else. I wonder how many of us get us into the place that if the enemy were to attack us, 
if he were to assault us in some way and we feel secure in our finances, we feel secure in the money we've saved up, we feel secure in the way that we've lived our lives, he were to attack us if there would be anybody around to help. Anybody to defend, anybody to help. I want you to know you do have an enemy, everybody. You do have an enemy. The Bible's very clear in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, that we need to be self-controlled, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a underline it in your Bibles, everybody, like a cat. All right, everybody? It's not me. It's the word of the Lord. All right? It's like looking like a lion, looking for someone to devour. You look at how a lion attacks everybody. A lion never attacks the herd. It attacks the isolated one, the individual that's gotten away from the herd, the one that's kind of wandering all out by itself. He never attacks in the herd. He always attacks in isolation. And so often in our lives, the devil will lull you to sleep thinking that you're safe. Thinking that you've got enough in your bank account, you've got enough financially stable, you've got enough in your life that you've done, you've amassed enough things that you're safe and nothing could be further from the truth. That you've isolated yourself from the relationships that you need. You've isolated yourself from the relationships and you think I'm untouchable and nothing could be further from the truth. You think, well, that sin would never affect me. Well, that that temptation would never get me because I'm too strong for it. And like the town of Laish, you've isolated yourself from the relationships that could protect you. You have to have people in your life to protect you. You have to have people in your life relationships. But this week, I would ask us as a church, who can I serve? Who can I encourage? And then I would ask you, who can I protect? Because if this is what we need as relationships, if we're serving ourselves, Galatians 5 in this way, if we're serving ourselves, a final question for you would be, who can I protect? Who can I stand with? Back to back with, who can I begin to protect? Who can I do that for? If that's what's needed, if that's what we need as Christians to run this race of faith, if we need to be able to protect each other, who can I protect in my life? Who can I stand up for? And then a few minutes before service started today, I just felt this, and honestly, I just felt this this tendency in my spirit to go towards this idea today, to not end with just this question. And so I talked to the guys in the back. This isn't in your notes, but I want to ask you a final question today. As we ask ourselves, who can I serve? Who can I encourage? Who can I protect? I want to ask us this summer as Christians. Final question of, then who can I reach? Because if we're running this race together, if this is the race of faith and we're beginning to love each other as a biblical community, serve each other humbly in love, who can I serve? Who can I encourage? Who can I protect? But then as a community of believers, who can I reach? Because I guarantee you there are people in your life that you are around. People in your life that God has sent to you that nobody else can get through to. But God has sent them to your circle for whatever reason it is that you're called to reach for the kingdom. And so instead of thinking with this selfish mentality, well, I've got Jesus and so I'm good. I've got what I need. I've got my fire insurance. I'm headed to heaven. That's all I need. I just need to hang on until it's my time to go. Instead of thinking in that mentality, begin to ask the greatest service of all that we can do for others in love is to tell them about their eternal soul and tell them about the cross of Jesus. And so as we ask these questions as a biblical community, as we can build and encourage and serve one another, more important than any of that is asking, who can I reach? Whose life is hanging in the balance? Who has God called to my circle? Who has God called across my path? Because you may have called somebody to you that no one else could reach, but you can. And so we ask ourselves the question, who have I been called to share the gospel with? Who have I been called to reach? And I promise if you'll live your life through that lens, 
Not asking all the time, how can I be encouraged or how can I be served or who can I look for as friends? But to ask yourself, who can I serve? Who can I encourage? Who can I reach? Who can I protect? If you live life through that lens, you'll live a life that is rich and rewarding in the kingdom of God. The life of a servant that he's called us to be. That's what success is in the Christian life. That's what the Bible teaches is success. Not to be the master, but to be the servant. Jesus said, the son of man came to be a servant to all. But he said, I've served you and as I've done, you do likewise. And in that moment that we stand before him on that day, when we give an account for our lives, the achievements we amass in this life, the buildings or the companies that we built or sold or the things that we've done, the accounts that we have, our, our line of bank accounts, all those things will not matter to us in that day. It will not matter one bit. It will be the lives that we touched the people that we reach, the people that are in eternity because of us giving all that we could to be a servant, to bring them into the kingdom. That's what we're called to be. And you know, the sad reality is so many of us, we live in America and if people were to look at our lives, if people were to look at us, they would say, you're successful and you're, you're rich in life and it looks like you've got everything great. It looks like you've done everything right and it looks great from the outside. But inside, if we're honest with ourselves, it feels a little meaningless. Some of the things that we've amassed, some of the things that we've done, we don't see the meaning in them. We feel a little broken. We feel a little disconnected. We ask like the writer in Ecclesiastes, we're asking, who am I doing it all for? What's the point of all of this? I feel disconnected from everyone around me. I feel like all of this is meaningless. And my prayer for you is right out of the book of Psalms. And it says in Psalm 68, it says that God will put the lonely in families. That he places the lonely in families. I don't care what stage of life that you're in. And you know where you're at. Maybe you're coming out of a dysfunctional marriage or maybe you're disenfranchised from your kids. Maybe there's no one around you. There's no friendships. There's, no, there's nothing to support you, no encouragement for you. And you feel like you're just running a meaningless race. Wherever it is that you are, I want you to know that I'm standing in faith that God would do a miracle in your life. That he would touch you and place you in families, that he would bring people around you. I just want you to know I'm praying for you. And I want you to know about a part of our church that we call small groups. You don't have to go. It doesn't do anything for me that you go. This is something I want for you. Your attendance does nothing for me. This isn't, this isn't where I just need you to give something. Or do. I want something for you. And if you're feeling alone, you're feeling disconnected, I want you to know there are groups in our church that would love to come around you and support you and serve you and love you and encourage you. About 15 of them that are meeting over the summer. You can join them any week you want. You can join them today if you want to. It's any day of the week. There's all different groups, all different variety of things. It's all these things. But I just want you to know I want this for you so badly. That you ask anybody who joins one, who feels loved, who's been encouraged. There are people who want to drum around you in a godly form of relationship and help you run this race. And if you're feeling alone or disconnected, I want you to know that it's waiting for you. Okay, not that we want something from you. We want this for you so badly. Because this life is passing us by so quickly. The things that we do, the things that we think are so important, I promise you in that last day probably won't be as important as we think they are. We have one life to live on this earth. It says it's a mist, it's a vapor. Let's live it for what actually matters. Who can I serve? Who can I encourage? Who can I protect and who can I reach? 
Every head bowed, every eye closed today as we pray. I just want to pray that God would begin to work on our lives and show us people that we can reach, people that we can protect, encourage, people that we can reach out to as Christians serving in love. I just want to pray a blessing over us. That God would encourage us to begin to be Galatians 5 type of believers. That we would be known for our encouragement. Known for our love. Known for our attitude of being a servant. Before we pray that prayer, I just want to ask those of you, you may be relationally distant. And today you may find yourself relationally distant from God. And I want you to know he doesn't blame you for why you got yourself to that place. He doesn't blame you for running from him. He's not mad at you. He wants to forgive you and he wants to rescue you. And you may be sitting here today or you may be watching online and you say, I found myself. I don't know when it happened, but I woke up and I was far from him. Or maybe you say, I never had a relationship with God. I want you to know today he's waiting to rescue you. He loves you more than you could possibly imagine. And so if you say today, I want to have that relationship, because listen to me, none of the other relationships work right until you get this one right. Until you get the one with him right. And so the most important one is secure. And so I'm asking you today, I want to pray with you. I'm not going to make you stand. I'm not going to make you come to the front. I'm not in this to embarrass you. I want to help you get right with Jesus. And so if that's you today, you say, I want to make that decision. I want to make that decision. I want to follow him for the rest of my life. I want to give my life to him. I just want to pray with you. And if you're asking that question, well, who is Jesus to me? Jesus is the perfect son of God who died on this earth, lived a perfect life and then died in our place, shed his blood for the forgiveness of sins and then rose from the dead three days later that anyone could call on the name of Jesus and be saved. That anyone, I don't care what your past looks like. I don't care about the things you've done, the lies you've told. Whatever it is that you've done, Jesus can forgive you. And he stands ready to do it right now. He loves you. So if that's you today, every head is bowed, every eye is closed. But you say, I want to pray that prayer. We'll pray it with you. I'll give you the words to say. But you have to say them and you have to mean them and surrender. If that's you right now, don't hesitate, don't wait. Everyone praying together, say, Jesus, save me. I repent of all of my sin. I believe you died on the cross. And I believe you rose again. And I make you the Lord of my life. In Jesus' name. Father, I thank you for every family, God, for every marriage, for every individual today, Lord. I thank you, God, that you do have a good plan for them. Lord, that you do have good plans for us relationally, God, that you do have good plans for us as a church. God, that you have plans for us as individuals, Lord, and that it's never too late. Father, that you are speaking life into us, that you are watching over the plan that you have for us and that you are moving things, God, to accomplish it. That it's never too late, Lord, to encourage. It's never too late, Father, to protect. It's never too late to serve. God, that we as Christians would begin to look for those opportunities. Lord, that we would begin to live the life that you've called us to live. Lord, in our relationships. Lord, in our church and our families. That we would build up instead of tear down, God. That we would know our success is not exclusive from others. But that we as the body of Christ are building your kingdom. 
any pride in our life. Lord, work out any pride that we have attached to our own success, but that we would follow after you with everything we have. As a church, we would be known as those who encourage, those who serve. That you're working through us to reach the world around us with the knowledge of Jesus Christ. We thank you for what you're going to accomplish. We thank you for what you're going to do. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. And all the church said amen and amen. Come on, church. Can we put our hands together for what God has done today?